Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Matt Kaler. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. And uh, what a privilege to worship with you and to study God's word. My name is Matt. I'm the family pastor here. And often you'll see me downstairs if you have kids. If you don't have kids, you may have not ever seen me. So um, it's good to meet you. And uh, I'm excited to be able to share God's word with you today. So um, Pastor Nate and his family, they begin their vacation, their kind of traditional summer vacation begins today. And he'll be back in the pulpit in a few weeks. Until then, Myself and some other pastors and a guest speaker later this month will be sharing through uh, these first seven psalms. So we get Psalm 4 today. So turn in your Bibles there. I want to read that psalm in its entirety and then pray, and then we'll jump into it together. The inscription in the psalm is, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You've given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And there are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart that they have when their grain and wine abound. So in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we have just sung about who you are, Lord, and who we are, God, members of your kingdom, Lord, your Beloved sons and daughters, we invite you by your spirit to speak to our hearts. Lord, to come in and rearrange the furniture, so to speak, and to, Lord, set yourself up on the throne once again and, Lord, direct and guide our lives. So, Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would pour encouragement into our hearts and hope today as a result of our time in your word. We ask it and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I remember seeing a comic once of a married couple and they were in bed and they were um, kind of turned in opposite ways from each other and there were thought bubbles above the, the wife and the husband's head and the wife, her thought bubble said something along the lines of, I think he's mad at me. You know, was it something I said? We're fighting how did this happen? I wonder if he's questioning our marriage. And then the thought bubble above the husband's head said something like, two feet. How could I miss a two-foot putt? (laughs) You know, I've heard it said that what you think about when you lay your head on the pillow at night reveals a lot about you. For some of us, maybe you're out even before your head touches the pillow. God bless you, by the way. (laughs) But for others of us, we lie awake at night, thinking through the events of our day, wishing we would have said that one thing to that one person, 
or feeling a little shame for the way that maybe we responded in a less than gracious tone to our kids. Maybe nighttime for some is where you lie awake and the fears or anxieties that weigh on you creep in and look to have one last shot before you drift off into sleep. Our thoughts before drifting into sleep can be all over the place, can't they? What we think about in those moments reveals a lot about us. And that's what I love about this psalm because it seems that David is actually experiencing a very similar thing that we experience, and that's a sleepless night. He says there in verse four that he's pondering in your own hearts, on your beds, be silent. He closes his psalm by saying, I will both lie down and sleep. He expresses in the psalm the distress that he's facing, the outward pressures that are coming upon him that seem to just all come to a head as he lays his head on that pillow. And I wonder if you felt a similar way. Maybe even last night as you're drifting off into sleep, you're thinking about everything that's going on in your life. Well, I think the good news for us is if we find ourselves in that place, maybe, maybe even if it's not at night, but even during the day where the anxieties and the fears of life kind of weigh on us, David here encourages us with, I believe, a perspective that we can have when facing these kinds of situations. And David, I believe, gives us three things that we can do to fight a sleepless night. And I wanna look at these three things together and we'll break them down this way. Verses one and two we'll look at, then verses three through five, and then we'll close with verses six through eight. So verses one and two, I believe what we see here is David calls on the Lord in his distress. Look again at verse one. It says, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. I love that. David, in facing distress and worry, what does David do? He responds in prayer, doesn't he? <laughs> he responds in prayer. Something so simple and basic, but yet we need to be reminded of it because I don't know about you, there are times when I'm facing something from, from the outside, a pressure that's, that's come upon me or an interpersonal conflict, and so often I want to be the one to kind of figure it out. My dad, growing up, he had a saying that he would always say, instead of handle with care, it was handle with prayer. And it seems that David has almost developed this reflex of prayer that, that we would do well to develop in our own lives as well. Because often when facing negative emotions, prayer is not the first reflex. And it's interesting to me as I read through the psalm, when David describes what he's facing, it's not like some other psalms where David is facing threats of death or um, attacks against his physical life. What he says is in verse two, he says, oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? What is it that David's experiencing? It seems that his anxiety stems from the lies that are being told about him, the misrepresentation of his character, the gossip and the slander that he's experiencing towards his reputation. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced those things. But interpersonal conflicts can be some of the most stressful and difficult situations to navigate through. And I, as I've already said, often try to tackle these on my own, almost like it's a Rubik's Cube. If I think through it long enough, I can crack the code, I can kind of get there. Now, what I'm not trying to say is that, you know, turn off your brains, 
Just give it to God and it's all gonna work out. God's given us a mind to process through and he's given us a measure of wisdom to be able to look at situations and understand where there's truth and where there's lies. And so I think the Lord has you know, been able to, to allow us some sense of navigating through these things. Um, and that's one of the things that separates us from the animals, right? You'll never find a dog depressed in the corner and just kind of lying there thinking, man, I think I barked too much at the UPS person. Like, they're not, they're not struggling with that, you know? They're not thinking about their negative interaction with the other dog at Carmel Beach. Like, that's not a thing. Like, but we think about those things to a, to a big degree. Like, a look could cause us to just kind of question everything in life. And yet, what does God call us to do? Well, yes, he's given us a mind and a capacity for processing hard or uncomfortable situations. But we know there's a, there's a point where no amount of extra processing or outside counsel or, you know, no amount of a thing that we pursue is gonna alleviate what seems to be just like a broken record playing in our mind or a one song playlist over and over again. We're not gonna find peace of mind. And what David does should encourage us to do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says, to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And friends, this is what David does. He responds in prayer. I love this verse in 1 Peter 5, 7, because I, I haven't yet found a qualifier to this verse. Cast all your anxiety on him. So not just like level nine, 10 anxiety, but like, all my, like even one and two anxiety is okay to cast on you. Yes. That Greek word all, as you know, a lot of theologians have done study on this, and it actually means all. <laughs> if it's heavy on your heart, he wants to carry it. As David responds in prayer, we can see what he does. He releases his cares to God. He says there in the second part of verse two, or verse one, you have given me relief when I was in distress, so be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Do you catch the urgency and the desperation in David's cry? He's pleading with the Lord. He's crying out to, them, to him. Have you ever been in a situation where you were so desperate to call on someone or to call someone and were so grateful when they responded to you. I remember a situation in my life before I was married to my wife, Bree. So this is BB before Bree. And we, I was living at home actually and um, living with my parents and I was a youth pastor at a church in the Central Valley and I was just finishing up my notes for that next Sunday morning. It was kind of a late Saturday night in the, in the cold uh, of January, and it, it had just rained. These are all details that are important. And uh, I, go, <laughs> I go to close, or I go to kind of lock the house up. I, I go out the back door to turn something off, and, and I turn, come back in, and I realize I locked myself out of the house. My parents had one of those doorknobs where you could turn it on the inside, even if it's locked, but on the outside, you know, you know the story. So there I am, no cell phone, no key, um, don't know my neighbors really all that well, and uh, I'm in the thinnest pajamas that I think I had in my drawers at that time. So barefoot, I decide I gotta get to a payphone. Um, do you remember payphones? Anybody under 20? It's like this box that you would go to that had like a handset with a cord, and you can actually communicate to people. So I decided I gotta get to a payphone, and about a quarter of a mile from our house, there was a shopping center with a McDonald's, and I knew there was a payphone there. As I'm walking there, I had one of those out-of-body experiences. I thought, is this really happening to my life right now? 
I'm walking barefoot with my pajamas and I'm cruising through, avoiding the, the rain puddles that had just collected. And so I finally get to the McDonald's and there's only one number that I could really remember and it was my sister's number and I knew she had a spare key to my parents' house since they were out of town. So I placed a collect call to my sister's cell phone. Did you know <laughs> you can't accept a collect call from a cell phone? <laughs> At least back in 2006. So there I am and... I'm just, start, I start panicking and I need to call her. I'm desperate, but I have no way. And then I see it in the distance. I'm in the shopping center. There's a grocery store. There's a Mexican food restaurant. In front of the Mexican food restaurant is a fountain. <laughs> yes. One of those, like at Del Monte Center where you have, you know, kids who make, they make a wish and they throw a coin in. So... I decided I got to do it. I have, there's no other thing I could do. So I, I walked over to the fountain. I rolled up my sleeve. I dipped my, my arm in and, you know, I'm searching around and I'm seeing a lot of copper and uh, not, not a lot of silver. So I'm getting just all wet. And then I realized there's, there's nothing down here. So apparently it's already been, you know, scrubbed of all valuables. So I decided I got to look on the second kind of tier. And so I stand up onto the fountain now at this point. Um, and I dip my arm into the second tier and I feel something that resembled a quarter and I pull it out and sure enough, I got a quarter. And then I scrounged around a little bit more because I needed 35 cents, so I got a dime. <laughs> so then I just hightail it back to the McDonald's hoping, dear Lord, help there not be security cameras here. You know, local <laughs> church pastor, you know, caught arm, arm in the fountain. So I put the money in, I place the... The, the call, and I'm, now I'm just hoping, Lord, help her pick up. A random number at like 12.31 a.m. at this point. And so I dial the number, it's ringing, and then I hear her pick up, and just, she, she just says, hello? Like, <laughs> what? who in the world? And then I immediately just jump into hope. I lock myself out of the house. I'm wet, I'm, I'm in my pajamas. I'm at the McDonald's. I need you to come with the spare key right now. There's a little bit of silence, and then she just busts up laughing. <laughs> And I think I even said, it's not funny, and I hung up. So I can laugh at it now. But I still remember that feeling of desperation. Like, this is all I've got. Like, I, I have to get there. I have to call, and she has to answer. And, you know, as we're talking about the kind of desperation that David has, you know, I think oftentimes we can treat prayer just like a formality. Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I got to pray. That's what we do. And there's no passion with our prayers to the Lord. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we could emotionally manipulate God because of the passion of our prayers. But even Jesus encouraged us when he was here to have boldness when we approach the Lord. He, the way that he said it is we need to keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. I love this. And, and friends, I know that prayer is important, but I wonder sometimes if we pray in, pray in such a way that it, it just kind of is something we gotta check the box instead of really pleading with the Lord. Lord, meet me in my time of need, just like David. Hear me when I call. N.T. Wright, Christian author, says this about Jesus's encouragement to keep asking, seeking, knocking. Jesus is encouraging a kind of holy boldness a sharp knocking on the door, an insistent asking, 
a search that refuses to give up. That's what our prayer should be like. This isn't just a routine or formal praying, going through the motions as a daily or weekly task. There's a battle going on and a fight with the powers of darkness. And those who have glimpsed the light are called to struggle in prayer. So David, he responds in prayer and then he releases his cares to the Lord. And then I see at the end of verse one, he rests in God's grace. David knows who the Lord is. He calls him the God of my righteousness. And there's a thing that David does in his prayers that I think he models so well. And that's first, he, he sees who God is. And then secondly, he recognizes what he's done. You see there in, in the middle, he says, you've given me relief when I was in distress. You see, that's what prayer does is we gotta recognize who God is. We gotta come to him as we just saying, hallowed be your name, Father in heaven. But we also need to recognize what he's done. As one teacher puts it, David uses past mercy as a ground for future help. I love that. David uses past mercy as a ground for future help. God, I know you haven't blessed me thus far just to abandon me now, so have mercy on me. So David does what we need to do when we're lying awake on our bed, facing the pressures around us. Call on the Lord in our distress by responding in prayer, releasing our cares and resting in his grace. Secondly, verses three through five, I believe once David is called upon the Lord in his distress, he then seeks to speak truth into his heart. Notice this, in verse three it says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now this is so important, especially if we find ourselves in a situation where accusations and falsehoods are being spoken against us. And sometimes the distress that we're feeling it's, it's just because we can't make sense of what is true and what is not. And in some ways, the enemy wants to just piggyback on that and just kind of expand those lies in our mind and in our thinking because the enemy's favorite strategy is lies. John eight forty four. Jesus spoke to this when he said, speaking of Satan, when he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. We have to remember that. When we're battling these things and we're trying to figure them, we know that there is a spiritual component to this. The spiritual aspect to what is going on. The way to fight the lies and deception is to counter them with the truth found in God's word. And notice what David does. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. David has been reminding himself of who God is and what he's done. And now David does this beautiful thing. He reminds himself who he is in light of this. He speaks to his heart. Now this word godly is a word that means those whom God loves with an unchanging love and those who love him back. It really describes those that are in covenantal relationship with him. So this is not to say that David's going, well, I'm the godly, you know, I'm over here. I've done everything, you know, I go to church on Sundays. I, um, I return the cart in the Target parking lot, you know, and uh, I uh, give thank you notes and all that kind of like, he's not saying that I'm good and these people are bad. He's already recognized that God is the God of his righteousness. You're my salvation. Like this isn't because of what I've done. So he recognizes who God is, and then in light of that, he recognizes who he is. God has set him apart. What is, what is David essentially saying with this? He's saying, you're not gonna abandon me. You haven't forgotten me. Even though the attacks and the accusations are coming against me, Lord, you are there for me. David says what we find really pointed out and clearly in Romans 8.31 
What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Isn't that true? God, even though it feels like no one else is hearing me right now, I know you hear me. And not only does David recognize that God hears him and is on his side, but he looks to God as his justifier. God will fight my battles. I don't have to. I heard someone say once, you know, it's quoting the verse, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And then kind of following it up with, but aren't we supposed to be about our father's business? You know, I don't think it works that way. <laughs> I, I think God can handle righting the wrongs. I think God knows those that are his and God sees the injustice that's happening in the world. When we've done what we need to do to speak to that part of our hearts and speak truth, we also need to do what David does, I believe, in verse four, and that is speak to that part of our heart that's tempted to sin. Next, David says in verse four, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts and on your beds and be silent. So after David speaks to his heart, he now searches his heart. David knows how easy it is to take the sins that someone's committing towards us and turn them right around and give it back, right? I don't know if you've been tempted to do that. Oh, you said that about me? Well, hey, I got something I've been wanting to say for quite a while. <laughs> Thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's interesting that, that David says, be angry and do not sin. And this is one of the reasons I love the Bible because of its nuanced approach to our human emotions and experiences. This idea of being angry without sin, John Trapp, an English Bible commentator says, he that will be angry and not sin, let him be angry at nothing but sin. I think that's good. Our reaction to sin and wickedness and injustice, our reaction should not be pacifism or apathy. Instead, we see that anger in and of itself is not always sin because God himself gets angry at wickedness and justice and sin. This is what we know of as a righteous anger, an energy aroused in defense of something good and released against something evil. The problem is too much of our anger is sinful, right? But the way of Jesus is not denying our human emotion. It's releasing to him the responsibility of righting that wrong. And when we do that, there's a, there's a type of freedom that comes into our hearts, isn't there? Now, I'm not saying that hurt just goes away. I'm not saying that, that trust is immediately restored, no. But I like how Corey Tin Boom puts this, someone who knew something about the hard road of forgiveness. She says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. You know, my boys, nine and four, they're at that stage where <laughs> they get along so well some of the time. <laughs> and we're learning basically the art of how not to retaliate. And so we're having a lot of conversations about, hey, you know what? Um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. <laughs> you know, Jesus said, when you slap someone on the face, you know, you, or when, when someone slaps you on the face, yikes, turn the other cheek. <clears throat> and I, even as I'm saying these truths, I understand, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> how counter, okay, I need some water. That's why I got the water. All right, we're gonna try that. I understand how counterintuitive they sound, especially to a nine-year-old. And I am so impressed with the creativity my son ha has for retaliating. <laughs> like, it's encouraging on some levels. And I'm like, to my wife, like, that was actually pretty creative. Like, 
But we can't show that. You know, we can't, we can't do that because we've got to parent them. But the idea is, as I'm sharing with our boys these things about, you know what, not doing to someone else as they do to you, like, this is not natural. I get to see what is natural with my nine-year-old and four-year-old play out before me. And it's like the Lord shows me like a glimpse of my heart and says, that's the natural tendency in us when we're wronged to wrong back. And as I'm encouraging our boys, it's like, God hasn't called us to do what's natural. He, he calls us to do what's supernatural. And that's only possible in him. And that's, that's where the church becomes kind of like a counter culture. Because the culture today is you wrong me, we're gonna wrong you and we're gonna let everybody know. And I'm not saying that, you know, wrongs need to be brought out. But when there's personal offenses towards us, to respond in a way that's gracious, to respond in a way that's Christ-like, this is not a natural work. This is a supernatural work. And that's why yielding to God's spirit is so important. And I believe in verse five we see, so if David is speaking to his heart, speaking truth to his heart, secondly, if he's searching his heart, Lastly, I think here he submits his heart in verse five. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. I think this is beautiful. (laughs) Of course, what this meant for David, when he says to offer right sacrifices, we can think of for David what that looked like was largely connected to the temple worship and to um, offering physical sacrifices, animal sacrifices before the Lord. But now this side of the cross, we can look and we can see that what Christ has done for us by being the ultimate sacrifice, by shedding his blood for us. Now we get the privilege, the, the beautiful privilege of responding to him with our lives. Romans 12, one and two. Therefore, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I love this. David says, offer right sacrifices. Continue to do those things that you were doing before this event and do them after. The the, the rhythms and the habits of our Christian life are not to be interrupted when we face difficulty and when we face trial. We had some friends who recently moved out of state and I was just connecting with them this last week and we were talking about what it was like settling in and for many of you um, that are military, you, you, you've just kind of gone through this process again and welcome to you by the way, we're so glad you're here. And one of the things I'm so blessed at and I was blessed with these friends is they were at church their first Sunday there in their new place. They, they wanted to connect, they wanted to continue that rhythm, that that had been established for their family. And many of you that I get to meet downstairs, you know, finding out a little bit about you, you know, I, I love hearing, this is our first week in town. It's like, wow, and you guys are at church. That's awesome. When I go on vacation, I don't go to church. You know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, so. But the idea of keeping those rhythms and continuing those things before and after and during, David did that. He's saying, offer the right sacrifices before the Lord. And put your trust in him. And so friends, we could see in these times of distress, we call upon the Lord. We speak truth to our heart. And then verses six through eight, 
What I see David do is he sets his heart upon the Lord. He sets his heart upon the Lord. Look at verse six. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Even as David once again is tempted to look at his life and say, what is this all for? Is this a hoax? Maybe, maybe the good that I'm looking for and the good that I want is not found in God, but in other things. Just when he's tempted to listen to that voice, he looks to the Lord and asks him for his face to shine upon him. The New Living Translation says it this way, Lord, let your face smile on us. And I believe this is David's way of resting in the favor of the Lord, the acceptance of the Lord. Because part of the reason slander and gossip and attacks to our character can sting so badly is because we at a very kind of base level all just wanna be accepted. I mean, how many of us like rejection? I, I mean, I... I had to get some dental work done recently and I think the dental office um, rescheduled me like two times, you know, it just kind of happened that way. And it's like the first one, I'm like, sweet. The second one, I'm like, is it me? <laughs> you start thinking, there's some really bad breath you guys are trying to figure out here or something, I don't know, but we don't like rejection, do we? It hurts to have someone see us and criticize us or question who we are. And sometimes in that sense, we can start to question ourselves too, question our identity, question who we are, what it's worth. We can say with our head on the pillow, who will show us some good? And that's what we need to do like David does. We need to look in the face of the one that knows us better than anyone else and the one that says, I accept you. I know who you are. I know every part of you, the good parts, the, the broken parts, and I love you even with all those things. And if you accept my verdict over you because of my son, I will make my home in you and begin a good work that won't stop until glory. You see, David finds his acceptance in the Lord. And as David looks upon the face of the Lord and remembers the blessings that, he's, that he has because of him, he says in verse seven, you've put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I love this because that, those two words, to me, you could almost circle, more joy. David's looking around and he's thinking about those around him that, that have abundance and wealth and possessions. And, and it's not that, that David thinks there's, there's no happiness or joy in that because there's a level that you can find some sort of security and some sort of happiness in much and in abundance, but we know that it doesn't ultimately last because all of those things are prone to the ever-changing seasons of life. And so David is making a distinction between the joy or the pleasures that we can find in this earth and the joy and the pleasure that we find from God. And this is why I think it's so important for us to understand what true joy really is. And C.S. Lewis is a person that has helped me so much in my understanding of true joy. He says this, it is a byproduct. Its very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something other and outer. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he speaks about how he viewed joy before giving his life to Christ. Joy itself, considered simply as an event in my own mind, turned out to be of no value at all. All the value lay in that of which joy was the desiring. And that object quite clearly was no state of my own mind or body at all. In other words, C.S. Lewis is saying joy points to something more, to someone more. You don't get joy by searching for it. It's the byproduct of seeking something outside yourself. 
And David says here, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. It's like Tim Keller says in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. If you aim mainly at personal happiness, you won't find it. But if you seek God as the non-negotiable good of your life, you'll get happiness thrown in. Too often we're looking to the blessings rather than the blesser. Instead of finding our joy in the gifts, we need to seek the giver. And that's what David does here. There are so many things that David could have consoled his own heart with. Look at you, David, you're king. Look at all the wealth. Look at all the power. Look at all that you've accomplished. Look at your kingdom. But what is it that he comforts himself with? What helps him find rest and peace and drift off into sleep? Verse eight, notice it says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You see, for David, he set his heart upon the Lord by finding his acceptance in the Lord, by finding his joy in the Lord. And then lastly, he finds his peace in the Lord. You alone, David discovered how to fight a sleepless night, how to get a good night's sleep. When he put his head on the pillow, there were so many things, but David came to the conclusion to realize that all of those things that were true about him merely described him, but they didn't define him. Because at best, those things could provide a temporary shelter, but God came not just to provide a shelter, but a home. And that's where the safety is found. When God becomes our home, he becomes our security. He becomes really the basis and the the foundation of our identity. When we believe more of what he says about us than what others say, or even what our internal dialogue says about us, when we allow his promises to become the theme song of our lives, where we're able to say, man, I don't know how it's possible, but his love is the greatest thing that I will ever experience in this life. In fact, I wanna read to you Romans 8, 35 through 39 in the New Living Translation with this idea of just finding our home and safety in him. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, that is where our security and safety is found. So much of the time, my mind goes beyond (laughs) what is happening And I think of all of the possibilities, all of the ways something could turn out. And it's as if I'm living in that future. It's as if I'm I'm, I'm just guaranteed that that's what's gonna happen. And I, I love one of the things my wife reminds me of, and you may have heard her say before. She says, God doesn't give us grace for our imagination. It's this idea that for many of us, we're living 
in tomorrow or two weeks from now or a year from now, and we're allowing the future, which is unknown to us ultimately, to impact us today. God gives you grace to face today. Don't spin that <laughs> on something that you don't even know and is not even guaranteed to happen. And guess what? His mercies, his grace is new tomorrow. So what happens tomorrow? Guess what? You get a whole fresh set of his mercy and grace. Do you remember that children's prayer that maybe you learned as a kid? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Let's be honest, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> if I should die before I wake, that's what we want our kids to be thinking of when they go to sleep. <laughs> it's like, Dad, I didn't even know that was a possibility. <laughs> now, now that's all I can think about. Thank you. Maybe it should be a prayer for adults. Maybe that's really what it is. I mean... Because we can really say, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Lord, that, that's gonna be an upgrade because you're not just the keeper of my heart. You really are the keeper of my soul. So friends, this takes on another dynamic because where that more joy comes in, where, where Christ and, and the Lord becomes alone, our safety that's sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians talks about. This is, this is a guarantee that we have that, man, he's not just here with us today, but he's gonna be with us into eternity. And that's something we could bank our life on. I close with this story. F.B. Meyer, who's a Christian commentator, wrote about two men who wanted to climb the Matterhorn and they hired three guides and began their ascent at the steepest and most slippery part. The men roped themselves together in this order, guide, traveler, guide, traveler, guide. They'd gone only a little way up the side when the man, last man lost his footing, and he was held up temporarily by the other four because each had a toehold in the notches they had cut in the ice. But then the next man slipped, and he pulled down the two above him. The only one to stand firm was the first guide, who had driven a spike deep into the ice. And because he held his ground, all the men beneath him regained their footing. And Meyer concluded his story by drawing an application. He said, I am like one of those men who slipped, but thank God I am bound in a living partnership to Christ. And because he stands, I will never perish. Friends, we can bank on that. You see, that gives us power and strength to face what it is that we have today. We can call upon the Lord in our distress. We can be reminded of who he is and what he's done. We can then speak truth into our hearts and be reminded of who we are in light of that and what he calls us to do. And then we can find our joy and our peace in him as we settle our hearts on the Lord. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.